Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning and welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Hope this day finds all of you well, and if, even if you're testing positive for COVID, you're not actually sick. So, but this morning, I have something that might be of interest to many of you who conduct investigations in Mexico. Please let me introduce you to my guest, Mike McHendry. Mike, hello. Well, hello, and good morning from Mexico. Yes, and Mike, where are you located in Mexico? Uh, I'm in the heart of Mexico. It, uh, the state is called... Guanajuato. It's oh, really, I know Guanajuato. It's really not a, house, a household name, but uh, I've had the good fortune I, I, when I moved here 22 years ago to uh, set up in the city of San Miguel de Allende, which is uh, pretty well known to, to people that, that, that travel. It's, a, it's, yeah, it's typically over the years been like number one or number two on Places like the Condé Nast list of the smaller international cities, or with travel and leisure. So, the town on weekends is—it's probably like trying to be uh, be in Aspen on a weekend. <laughs> right. It, it's overrun. So, but it's still a terrific place to live, and um, you know, with some good luck, I'll stick around here for a long, long while to come. Well, I love Guanajuato. It's a wonderful little t- little town. Little village, kind of, sort of. Yeah. Uh, so, why in the world did you move to Mexico to begin with? <clears throat> well, uh, in the in the case of my former marriage, uh, um, my wife was ready to retire. At least, at least, I showed her why it made sense to retire. Uh, she was running a, a security guard service. And uh, the margins in security guard service required that you probably work 90 hours a week. And it just made more sense to sell the business. And in, in the course of having spent some uh, winter getaways in Puerto Vallarta, uh, people that had been met on the beach recommended uh, having a look at San Miguel de Allende in case of a desire to ever, ever move down here. And uh, so that all came to pass, and uh, that's what brought me down here was originally to be retirement. Oh, I see how well you did that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, um, you, you know, well, things have a way of working out, and uh, one way to describe it is uh, sometimes one door closes and another one opens. But well, you... uh, I, upon arriving down here, it was it was revealed that. Uh, in her opinion, gee, there just wasn't enough money left over after making all the settlements that go with selling a business. And uh, and my recommendations on how we could have cut back on some overhead, um, well, the response was, no, nothing doing. Why don't you go back to work? 
I see. <laughs> so I said, That's a oh, yes, yeah, sweetie, okay, I'll do that. And, and <laughs> so I put up a website. And, you know, honestly, I bought a little you know, box off the shelf for creating a website uh, in the year 2000. And it took me a couple of days to put it together. And immediately after posting it, I mean, within less than a week, uh, the emails came in, the phone calls came, and it's been full-time employment ever since. Well, I didn't realize that, because uh, you and I have known each other for a number of years. I guess it was about 2000, so about 20-some years ago, mm-hmm. that uh, you first started coming to conferences that I attended. Well, yeah, my, I, uh, I, they're, they're, it depends on where they are. Uh, like in the case of the uh, California Licensed Investigators, Group, uh, I make those meetings perhaps, perhaps every four years at best. Other groups I go to annually, but uh, you you attend a lot of meetings as I do because networking is important. And uh, so yes, uh, we can we can acknowledge that we've known each other for a couple of decades now. That's that's a scary thought, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that is. What's yeah. more scary is to pick up the newspaper. Uh, in Mexico, you wouldn't read that because uh, age is somewhat venerated down here. But uh, when I read a story about someone who was struck in a crosswalk, all too often they tear re- refer to the older person as being uh, an elderly man was struck and, and injured in a crosswalk today. Uh, he's 72 years old. And I mm-hmm. read that, and I go, oh, oh horrors. <laughs> and you didn't uh, perceive... That's elderly. You, know, <laughs> you didn't perceive yourself as elderly. by a high school journalism student. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Well, Mike, I wanted really wanted to have you on the show because you have so much information about conducting investigations in Mexico that those of us in the States knew, know little about and don't know how to navigate the process. So I want to talk about that. And well, I know sure. you have a lot to offer. I could share some information this, uh, this morning about uh, the differences in how to obtain information down here because they are um, noticeably different than practically you know, all places within the United States. So where do we start? Well, I would think we could start with uh, what people just commonly refer to as police reports. Okay. Because because there is interest in that for all manner of reasons. Um, the first thing I'd like to point out is that in Mexico, the police don't investigate anything. Hmm. Uh, the system here is that the people you see riding around in patrol cars or, or walking a, a beat are, are known as policia preventiva. And essentially, uh, maybe they have police powers... And they can make an, an on-view arrest for a crime that's you know committed under their nose. Uh, they could they could apprehend somebody if, for example, see someone is, is escaping from a, a house robbery or home invasion, uh, and they're running down the street and they can and they can still find them uh, and catch them. That's good. But once once the event is over. And uh, there's, there's no one has been promptly detained. Then the victim is, has to take it upon themselves to go down to the district attorney's office for the state and file a report. 
So, as you can see, uh, nothing happens between the, the commission of the crime and when somebody's able to make it down on their own to give a police report. Now, there are certain exceptions. Yeah, if you're if you're truly truly wounded, uh, they'll send someone to the hospital. But for ordinary circumstances, uh, folks have to have to go out and, and report their crime, and then they uh, they type up uh, a form called the denuncia, which is essentially like a criminal complaint, and then they take that and they turn it over to a the sub-office of the district attorney, um, which is the Policia Judicial. And these are the guys who are, they tend to be plain clothes authorities, and they actually go out and do, do the field work that the detectives do. Hmm, that's people very work interesting. And in, in, in take this intake, they're, they're all uh, lawyers. Um, most of, They tend not to be career people. They, uh, throughout the different states, they last about typically maybe three years, sometimes just two in an office, and then they move them around to to a different jurisdiction. Uh, and the best the best explanation I can come away with that has been that it's to discourage um, too much familiarity, uh, compromise, and corruption. Interesting. Very interesting. So, so that's you know that's how how the how the crimes are reported. Uh, for 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 you know for all types of manners, but the the problem is that, that once the, you report it, all too often they don't do anything about it. The criminal conviction rate historically, in the time that I've been here, hovers around three percent. That's amazing. It's really so amazing. The other ninety-seven percent, some of which may have been reported, uh, nothing ever comes of it. Okay, Which kind so of explains why they're you know right now in Mexico there's um, since in the last uh, twenty years there there's there's upwards of like about seventy or eighty thousand missing persons cases that have never been worked. That's a, that's really incredible. Well, that's well it is. I guess that's they, the are, they have disappearances here. Yes, I guess that's so why we, the cartels are allowed to thrive as much as they are. Um, well, it certainly makes it easier because a lot of things up, you know, happen with impunity. You're right. Uh-huh. But so you have these you have these police reports, and I just generically call them that. But the actual office is called the Ministerio Público, and that's the investigative branch of the district attorney's office, which is the, the lawyers. So if you want to get a copy of their report. <clears throat> You can't just go down and ask for it and see a clerk and pay, pay your money and take a seat. Uh, they, their reports are considered not open for public inspection for, for any type of crime that they investigate or suspicious activity. So uh, it's necessary for either uh, a victim or some other party to the event or, or in the case of, uh, of uh, death, well, then an immediate family member has to prepare um, something that's like an, a letter of authorization and request. It, it, it's not much different than a very informal, limited uh, power of attorney. And we, we help people prepare those letters, 
and then they designate the, some of the basics of who, what, where, and from that, uh, they name us as their personal representative to obtain a copy of the report on their behalf. So with that in hand, then it's, it's, it's mandatory uh, that you have to go to the office in person and present this uh, authorization request letter. And with that, uh, customarily, as long as it's now a closed case, uh, they will preside, present a, a copy of the report. And their reports run anywhere from maybe three or four pages to 40, 50, 60, depending upon the complexity of the occurrence. And so uh, when they're ready to release it to you, <clears throat> then they will typically assign someone like a, a clerk or a secretary to accompany you someplace to where you can um, pay to have a copy made. They don't provide copies. So you go to any one of the number of small stores here that are called papelerias, and uh, they sell stationery and gifts, and, and they, they <laughs> typically have a, a copy machine inside of them. So you stand there, and while the representative from the Ministry of Publico uh, oversees the clerk, make the copies, and then you pay the clerk, and you keep your copy, they keep the original, and then everybody goes their separate way. What would a police report cost? Um, well, it, there's, there's, they, for the report itself, they don't charge for that. Yeah, because the people have a right to it under the circumstances I described. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I mean, you go to, you're going to go somewhere and pay like maybe three or four cents a page to have it copied. Okay. Okay. Now, where it can get to be a little bit sticky is if you if you need a certified copy of a report, uh, because the way it's done here is that uh, the person in authority in the office, uh, not just one of the lawyers, but the boss. Uh, has to stamp and uh, initial every page on a report. Huh. And, well, you know, they can be busy, busy people and, or they can be unavailable. You know, they could be at a seminar, they could be at a crime scene, they could be sick. Well, nothing happens until that limited person signs off on a, for you to get a certified report. So it's, it's best not to pursue that if it's possible. I see. And what Within what the, kinds of yeah. cases, uh, Mike, would be investigated? Well, uh, what they what the Ministry of Public investigates are, are uh, instances, obviously, like a property crime. Uh, they also investigate uh, in in the case of personal entry. Uh, they they will uh, seek to determine the purposes if someone has, is culpable for, for whatever happened to the victim. Uh-huh. And, and then, uh, and, you know, in the course of that, of course, if it's a traffic accident situation, they might just say, well, it looks like it was the, driver, the driver's fault. Otherwise, you know, they would endeavor to see if it was caused by somebody else. Uh, they, they are required to respond to instances of death when an ambulance has been called, uh, they're supposed to participate in when there are unattended deaths. And I think for the most part, that's done somewhat consistently. 
So anything other than that probably would just fall under the radar. That's right. Uh, so yeah, uh, it, leave, it leaves the door open for the possibility uh, of fraud, you know, which cases uh, I've seen certainly a couple of them here, where um, um, a doctor has taken a payoff to, to sign off on a debt saying I was there and then uh, put down a reason for it. And with that, then there's no need for an autopsy and no need for police involvement. So, so when something that, like that happens... That's ha- obviously, uh, obviously interest to insurance companies. Exactly. So if you have a situation mm-hmm. like that, I mean, how do you even pursue it? Well, uh, um, generally by you can do it by through, through interviews and, and records. Um, it's the last time we ran into this, a, a fella died, and he and uh, he was uh, in the company of, of another fella. I'm not sure if it was boyfriend or just a, a drinking and drugging buddy. But uh, he was died, and his his parents were trying to collect insurance, life insurance benefits. And it came to pass that uh, that no ambulance had been called. Um, the the other person who was present at the time of death just simply uh, had uh, called a funeral service, and they came and picked him up. Uh, but then there was a doctor involved who signed off on a death certificate, and we later came to find out that, uh, well, he <laughs> from inconsistent stories that he'd never been there. And and then he couldn't produce records, uh, medical records that he, that he should have had. And and then we came to find out that uh, he wasn't the doctor. We wasn't called until involved in this until like a day after the death. And we went to when we went to interview the doctor. Uh, we found that the doctor had called the parents immediately after after we walked out the door. And we went back for a follow-up interview. Uh, we, we, by checking phone records, we had found that the doctor had called the parents while we were kept waiting in the reception room so they could coordinate their story. And when, when all these things came out, eventually uh, the, the parents called us and said, um, we just want to drop the claim. Because obviously they had committed felonies. So okay, there's so opportunity I'm, for that here, yeah, because you I'm, know people just don't, don't follow up diligently on a lot of stuff. Okay, so I'm, I'm curious about this. So the parents were involved in some kind of fraud as well. Yeah, well, the, uh, they 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 were collaborating with the, with the doctor after their son died to accomplish what? Uh, well, to get with, with his. Uh, document that he signs, then the government issues a death registration, which the people then send off to the insurance company along with whatever forms the insurance company requires completion, and they, they wait for their payoff of benefits. And in this case, why wouldn't the insurance company have paid off? What was it? What were the circumstances of the death? Well, the, the, the problem was it was an unattended death, and, and the police had never been notified. And and the the doctor alleged that the guy died of had had heart problems when he never had a history of heart problems. Younger so no, so nobody knows how he died, really. 
No, uh, no, because there was no no autopsy. No autopsy was done, and he and he was uh, and uh, promptly cremated. And we and the, and the people that, that ran the funeral service said, "Well, yeah, we just we just follow orders." They said, "Come and get him and have him cremated." And we said, "Okay," and we did. <laughs> of course, we just say yes. okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a. Uh, there's just lots of lots of loopholes and opportunities for 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 people to think they can get away with it. So, uh, so how difficult is it to get medical records? You were talking about medical records. How difficult is that? Because you know we typically well, get that on every case, almost on murder cases. Well, yeah. Well, me- medical records are really a different story here. Uh, the, the first, the first thing that happens uh, when, like, a, particularly a insurance uh, claims handler or, or another investigator contacts me, or send me, um, don't use them here, but a, a, a HIPAA form. Does that make sense to you? A HIPAA form, yes. Uh, we're familiar right. with well, HIPAA they, forms. <laughs> right. Well, they send those to us written in English, and then, which are useless here. <laughs> and then they send them a photocopy, and that's also useless here. <laughs> the, the, there are federal laws, and then the states have, have pretty, uh, each have their own individual regulations, which uh, are taken from the federal regulations. So in, in Mexico, you cannot go to a provider and, and ask for a third party's medical record. And in fact, if you want your own, uh, you're going to have to jump through some hoops as well. Uh, the law, the law doesn't provide for for handing out copies of nurses' notes, uh, operation operating room notes, X-rays, uh, laboratory studies, um, drugs administered during uh, hospitalization. None of that information is permitted by law to be released. However. Uh, they do have a provision in the law where a healthcare provider could provide a summary of what had happened. So what customarily provided is depending maybe a one or sometimes perhaps a one and a half page uh, single space summary of, of the, the who, what, when, where, and how of a patient coming into a, the care of a provider uh, for how long, what they diagnosed, uh, how they how they treated the diagnosis, uh, and how the case ended. Uh, the patient was released, the patient died, for example. And so to obtain that, it's, it's a similar procedure to obtaining a police report. They want to see an original Spanish language letter from the patient or from an immediate family member uh, designating why they why they want the information, who it's about, and, and who's been authorized to receive it. And, and those letters, and much as it should be done in the case of the, of the letters for the police department records, they should be notarized, and they should also include, as in either case, a, a copy of some of a photo identification of the signer, and preferably. 
some type of a copy of a document that establishes the immediate family relationship between the requester and the patient or the victim. That's a lot that, of hoops to jump through. Well, it is, and, and none of and none of this stuff not, not, is is permissible or accomplished online or over the phone. You have to go there, or somebody has to go there. So it has to be you know specific about who the person is that's going to be requesting a, a record, a medical or a police report, and that has to be the same person that then comes back to pick it up. Wow. So uh, if you, if if you're going somewhere around the country, the chances are you have to you have to go there and you need to stay there until until they complete their job. That's amazing. So I let me just say for those Well it affects folks. yeah, and it affects, you know, obviously completion time and billable time to get it done. It sure does. Uh, so let me just define HIPAA, uh, Mike, for our listeners, because some people may not know what that what that is. It's HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A, stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And for and every time you request a medical record, at least in the United States, and it sounds like in Mexico as well, you have to have a signed HIPAA form. Uh, whether it's for medical records or psychological records, it has to be uh, signed by the individual um, who's the possessor of the records. So it it's, uh, sounds like it's very complicated in Mexico. Uh, United States, we've kind of managed to uh, navigate through the process, and it be- it's become pretty simple. But it sounds like that isn't the case there. Well, it's, it's just following Mexican law. Uh, right and, and 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 actually, all types of records down here, as our discussion will reveal, are, are typically not treated as uh, open to public review, which is, is certainly does an upside to it as well, because you don't have a lot of people snooping. So that's the story on medical records. Now, the, uh, the one other thing to mention that uh, isn't yeah, does count is the the type of a facility that provides the care makes the difference in what you get. Uh, for example, uh, if you for the medical records to be required and retained, it has to be that the person uh, well, obviously one number one if they died. Otherwise, if they are uh, kept overnight in a clinic or a hospital, it's, it's called the internado. So if, they, if they've been in the facility for like 24 hours, then they're required to keep these records for up to five years. But if you go to someone like, we'll just call it a doctor's visit, um, those are, those are uh, uh, called consultarios. And they're not required to keep any kind of records uh, that relate to treatment. Uh, they, some of them, are, are, I think most are required, but I don't see, think it's inconsistently, are supposed to keep uh, a log of patients as they come in. But, but making notes about the who and where and why they treated them, that's not required. So that can, you know, if somebody present wants copies of those types of records, there's a diminished expectation. Now, the exceptions to this happen Mike, in, the, in, you, the board, 
Yeah, Excuse me a second. Ahead. Before before you go into the exceptions, because this is very fascinating, uh, we need to take a real quick break and let our sponsors have a word. So we'll be right back. I'm good with that. Thank you. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Mike McHenry. He's coming to us from Mexico and telling us all about how to maneuver and navigate uh, cases in Mexico as a private investigator. So, um, Mike, you were just talking about the exceptions to getting medical records from a doctor's office. Well, yes, uh, and it's not not a statutory exception by any means, but um, most folks are aware of medical tourism. Uh, and and the doctors who are located in border cities, uh, if, if for their patients who are Americans, they tend to keep some form of records because they know that's an expectation uh, in order to for patients to receive reimbursement. Now, and so they, they do keep them, and they can be found, and they tend to give them up with a, an authorization that I had previously described. And, and then you get more detailed than just the, the summary. But uh, that's also a case that makes for an interesting uh, opportunity for abuse. And I'm thinking of an insurance company that... Um, provides supplemental coverage. And, and so uh, even though you have a, a regular health care policy, if you're, if you're sick and injured, uh, they'll send you some extra money. And 
what people have done, and I and I think this has gotten fixed over the years, is uh, they could go they could go to uh, one of these medical providers and in, in across the border, and for typically uh, five dollars, maybe now it's as much as maybe it's as much as seven or eight dollars. Uh, they see a, a medical doctor, and they complain, well, we've got influenza. Uh, my, my kid fell off a swing set and, and, and has a, a laceration or an abrasion. Uh, none of these things probably are true, but they, but they get the doctors to sign a form saying that I treated the insured, I treated one of their dependents. They take that form and they send it off to the insurance company, and then the mail comes a check for a hundred dollars, maybe a hundred and you know more than a hundred dollars, you know, and the, and the investment for them is a trip across the Rio Grande River, and uh, and five dollars of and their time. So you might think, well, gee, that's kind of a lot of hassle for that. But the cases I, that I was assigned, there were families that had thirty, forty claims in the course of a year. And, you, and then you notice that in the uh, couple of weeks preceding Christmas, the claims skyrocketed. Hmm. So, so they used this to fund their Christmas shopping. Sounds like an awful lot of work <laughs> to do that. Well, it, 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 it may, yeah, yeah, and of course it, it doesn't turn out so well if you get caught either. Well, um, probably I don't not. know anybody, you know, if anyone was ever prosecuted, but. Uh, uh, using, using doctor visits like an ATM machine is unsustainable. For sure. I, you know, Mike, I'm curious about the law, uh, how laws are enacted in Mexico. So, um, because this well, idea there's that a, the... there's a Congress and, okay. a, and a president, and they all have to agree. They have to agree. So, yeah, like, it's, you know, Mexico is a, you know, is a, is a, is a democratic uh, country. Uh, there's a Senate, there's a uh, House um, Delegados, which is like a House of, Represent- House of Representatives. You have the executive, and, and in that sense, that's how business is done. So why do you think now, it how, is? That, why do you think it is that there that doctors aren't required to keep records? That's an odd thing to me. Well, I think it because it, it, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is. Um, these, these clinics are, are inexpensive, and so maintaining records is, becomes a, a, an operating expense that has to get passed through. And the people who routinely go to these places, um, you know, they don't have much money, so it keeps the cost down. And um, and 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 it's just considered well, okay, you know, it's it's a runny nose, it's a it's an abrasion, or you, you needed a couple of stitches. Uh, you you came in because you got a sore throat, whatever. Uh, what's the point? They, they don't they don't just they don't see the necessity for it. Now, okay. interestingly, these type, these types of operations are most oftentimes uh, well, two two of them. One's okay, a regular practitioner, and they may or more than likely will operate out of their home. They may have reconverted their garage or simply a, a bedroom on the ground floor and turn that into their you know, doctor's consultorio office. But uh, others, there's, in the, the, uh, the, the pharmacies that sell generic medicines, and there are, there are a few of them down here, 
they subsidize these clinics. And the clinic is always located next door to the pharmacy. So we, when you get your prescription, um, they just say, okay, take it next door. And that works. Like, yeah, okay, that's good. And, and then besides that, they save a lot of money anyways. I, I buy generic medicines. Uh, here, uh, you can buy everything over the counter except for, you know, obviously controlled substances, narcotics, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, antibiotics. Interesting. But, yeah, you know, if, you have heart, if you have heart problems, you have depression, you've got uh, whatever, you just go to the pharmacy and, and you pay an embarrassingly, embarrassingly small price and, and get what you need and you walk out. Hmm. It's nice. That's amazing. So what other kind of <laughs> obstacles um, are there, Mike, that you Well, there are, there are problems getting civil records. Uh, civil court case court files are not open for public inspection in Mexico. Okay. Um, um, but what what through intermediaries uh, uh, we we can obtain uh, court docket information, and that docket information explains the the names of the parties, the location of the court, uh, dates, uh, file numbers, and by looking at the uh, at the at the uh, the type of court, it gives you a clue as to what type of, of a matter it might be, like family, landlord-tenant, employee relations, uh, just general business disputes. Does it give you the conclusion that, of the case? No. It, no. You just, you just notice that the, 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 the docket entries end on a particular date. So if you want the information, you can, uh, more specifically, you want access to the court file, well, you can certainly, you know, do it through the consent or cooperation of one of the parties involved. Uh, you can go down to the courthouse and find someone who looks like he's walking around with a briefcase, probably a lawyer, and uh, and uh, they they sometimes will say, yeah, okay, um, I'll go over there and tell them I'm working on the case, and they can pull a file. Uh, other in other instances. Uh, uh, the lawyer, they don't have to do anything because the, they're, since they're regulars at the courthouse, they have a working relationship with the clerks. So the clerks can say, oh, you know, Senor, good to see you today. What do you need? Well, I want to see this file. Yeah, okay, take a seat. And they get the file, and, we, and then they, they take us over, and they hand it to us, and we review it. Uh, if it's too far away to go there or something like that, then we can hire a lawyer in the town where the courthouse is located and engage them to obtain the, the file for us. So you, as work around, I, I don't, you know, I don't get too immersed in the details of, uh, of, of, of how it should or should not be done, but that's a way to obtain the information from civil court files. So you, as a private investigator, have you established relationships with people that you can actually go get files like that? Well, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, in, in, in my in my in my activity here, um, I sell access to information. Okay. All right. What other kind of obstacles uh, are there? Are, well, are things that we Americans or people from well, other countries? Well, let's take for example driver's license records and, and licenses. Here in Mexico, uh, you can typically in most of the 31 states, you get a driver's license, and it can be good from two to five years. Uh, and the more the more you pay. The, the more years you get. <laughs> okay. So, 
Yeah. So so and then uh, and then if you and then when we get a request, we get, we can like we can verify driver's licenses. That's done through my friends and the authorities. It's it's not open for public inspection. The driver's license record. And other people request, okay, well, we want to see a driving history. Well, that's really wishful thinking uh, because there actually are not a lot of traffic offenses written here. The, the police are pretty slack about a lot of stuff. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not enthusiastic about stopping people. And typically, uh, a traffic offense is settled on the side of the road. That's through a bribe, evidently. Yes, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and then and, and then they you know and then you can go out, get back in your car and drive ninety or hundred miles an hour again uh, until maybe your luck runs out and the next guy pulls you over. But it's not going to be on your record. Well, police officers have to make a living too, you know. Well, well, around here they certainly do. What they, <laughs> what they're paid is, is is shockingly low. But what they require of them uh, to qualify for the job. Is is also part of the problem. So uh, the public, when it comes to the, the local, especially the local police, traffic police, uh, they get what they get what they pay for. And in Mexico, the the, the, the uh, traffic police and the policia preventiva that I described initially, uh, they're typically separate operations. So the police don't have anything to do with traffic. It's traffic uh, traffic cops. And so the traffic cops, uh, they have no authority uh, for for dealing with any criminal offense. And if there's an issue, well, then they have to call the police to come and uh, restore the peace. So, Mike, how do the federales play into this? Well, the federal the federales are in, have been in turmoil. They used to be known as the as, uh, there was just a, uh, the federal highway patrol. And then you had, and then you had the, the, the federal uh, prosecutors, people. Uh, then, then they had the, the federales were created, uh, and they merged all these things into one outfit. And for about, uh, you know, eight, about eighteen years or so, uh, it was the federal police. And so then everybody wore the same uniforms, drove the same kind of cars, and it was uh, a huge, a huge police force. In the thousands and thousands, then then that got reinvented because they were accused of, and had morphed into corruption. So now they have a new force called the Guardia Nacional, in which uh, the all the police were required that wanted to keep their job. They had to submit to polygraph examinations and background investigations, and 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 then if they didn't, they were shown the door. So now they have different uniforms, different cars, and it's, it's sort of like the same story, different day. But uh, they they uh, they they have branches like protection and investigation in, in all the airports around the country. They have a, a highway patrol division. Uh, they have uh, it's it's a massive organization. Um, they have anti-corruption investigations. Uh, that's and they and they they pay better and they expect more out of their applicants, so that's one distinguishing thing. Okay, interesting. So, now, Mike, we have yeah. excuse me just a second. We have a few minutes left, and I know you have pet peeves about uh, people who ask you to 
to get information for them. I'd like to hear what those pet peeves are. Well, I can, you know, you know the, the, these, these tend to be things that come from other investigators. Uh, and, uh, you know, one that comes to mind, which is still germane with what we're t- first talking about, uh, there are no information vendors in Mexico. Uh, so there are no subscriptions to IRB, TLO, or all of some of the others that have come and gone over the years. And, uh, and, and I don't expect there ever will be because there's, there, there is considerable respect for privacy, um, However, in the case of my work, well, there are some workarounds, but generally speaking, I mean, we don't even have phone books here anymore. The phone books have been done away with because the, the crooks were looking up the addresses and phone numbers of their victims for extortion calls or, or break-ins. So it's harder and harder to get information about finding people. But uh, which brings me to the fact that I see these emails on these listservs for different associations where they swap information about cases and, and looking for help in different places. And you know, one of the things that's disappointing for me is um, people used to get out and, and they had more initiative and they were more resourceful. Now, you know, now I see these postings and they say, Oh, I can't find somebody on TLO or IRB. I just don't know what to do. Help me. How do I find somebody? <laughs> and it let just me, makes you want Mike, to let me, let me, Excuse me a second. Let me just explain. We may have some non-PI listeners. So TLO, IRB, these are all proprietary databases that are subscription-based. You have to be vetted to access them. Um, it's 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 pretty strict as far as who can have the information. So I just want to put that out there because not everybody can go to one of these databases and uh, get information. Well, that's true. Uh, but somehow, uh, somehow getting off your tail and, and going out the door to find somebody seems to be heading into obsolescence. And I don't understand it, and I certainly don't think much of it. Um, you know, another deal is, is this comes from other investigators who are listening. Uh, I get emails, and they say, uh, "How much does it cost to find somebody in Mexico, and how fast can you do it?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I look at that, and, and and that message just screams out loud, "Hey, I have not a clue what I'm doing in this job." Exactly, that's true. That's true. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't know how... Uh, it, it's all the consequences, in my opinion, obviously, of the Internet in this, in this email stuff because people used to communicate. And, and they don't even send me a, a location, a name that they're looking you know, of where they want to find somebody. And they don't even take the time, really, to, to, to say it. I get something that says, uh, need to find somebody in Mexico, need cost and T-A-T, and, and if I'm lucky, they even sign their name. Well, um, <laughs> as you imagine, they don't necessarily get a response. Well, let's just say, again, for our non-PI listeners, TAT is t- time and travel. <laughs> or or mm-hmm. so, Turnaround time. Turnaround yeah. time, yeah. yeah. Um, so so what, do you, what do you want to know? If, if, if I call you with a case in Mexico, what do you want to know from me? Well, we have to have a Mexican's complete name. 
and, and Mexicans are only known are known by two last names, and that's how all Mexican records are organized. First, their father's last name, and then their mother's last name. Uh, women don't change their name upon marriage. Your name at birth stays with you till death. So, uh, if you don't have both last names, you're sunk because uh, there are so many common names here, and we have to have both last names, and ideally, a date of birth because there are astonishing numbers of people who have the same names throughout the country that you would never think would be duplicated. And also, it sometimes the location helps, but especially the name thing. That's that's what is. We then they say, well, we don't know. We only have one name. And then because of the confusion in the United States about how Mexicans are named, if they see a Mexican name, and we'll just say Smith and uh, Garcia and Ramirez, which are hugely common names here. Mm-hmm. So if you have Juan Garcia Ramirez, uh, these people go for a job. And uh, with their phony ID or whatever, and 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 they're looked at, and the guy goes, "Oh, well, you must be Juan Ramirez, because that's the last name in the string of names." Is how it would be the case in the United States. So now we're not even using the right name anymore. So then they, when they contact me, they say, "I'm looking for for Juan Ramirez." Well, what you really need is Juan Garcia Ramirez, because all the records are going to be organized first under the name of Garcia. And then, secondly, under the name of Ramirez, and so without the, those, the, your results are hopeless or compromised. So the first last name is always the father's name, and the second last name is always the mother's name. Is that what you said? Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's how it has to be. Well, and and that's not how we operate in the United States, and no, and, and actually <laughs> in many countries. Mm-hmm. Well, it's that's true, and other things. Uh, when they when they when they send the states, they they don't know that it's very much except for the United States. In the rest of the world, the dates were organized for the day, month, and year. Okay. So, you know, it, uh, obviously, I can sort it out uh, if if the if the the date is bigger than the than the twelfth. <laughs> right. But after that, if if we got April third, uh, you know, I'm not sure if we're looking for March fourth or April third, right? Which can compromise the search results. So, so you so you want the date spell spelled it out. out? Spell it out. Don't okay. send me numbers. Just spell it out. What month and what day you're looking? You know, it applies That's... to what I'm going to help you with. Both of those are good tips. What else, Mike? Well, uh, Mexican addresses are different uh, in many in smaller places. Uh, there are no street signs. There are no street names. They're just dirt roads. And um, homes uh, in smaller places don't even have house numbers. Mm-hmm. So you, all you have is the name of a village. Uh, another problem is uh, in, in here, uh, house numbers oftentimes are just... Well, I really don't know, <laughs> know the thinking that goes into this, but house numbers are not in order on a street. Okay. So they're helter-skelter, and they may be even odd numbers on both sides of the streets. That makes it complicated. <laughs> and, way, and way out of order. So uh, when, they, when they send you that and it's all screwed up, that adds to more billable time walking the street and visiting with the local uh, convenience stores or the cab drivers or the mailman trying to find out where somebody lives. Mm-hmm. But it, that's the hand that people are dealt and then they pass it on to me, 
and uh, that's what I have to work from. So all these things, Francie, uh, in looking at it in the big picture, um, demonstrate uh, inefficiencies and inaccuracies and, and a way of doing business that is, is not especially customer-oriented when you're trying to obtain information from, from government and private sources. And all of this adds to billable time. So it, the result is that work here typically tends to take longer and cost more. Yeah, I can see that. That's uh, All of that is mm-hmm. such valuable information, Mike. I, I really appreciate that because it does... Uh, it does define what needs to be happen here mm-hmm. or elsewhere before we come to you. Right. And there's one other little uh, consideration here uh, is that gratuities are still appreciated and accepted in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So uh, someone may not stick their hand out in order to get some cooperation. Not that I haven't run into that more than I can count. But right. um, when it's all said and done, uh, something that might be worth equivalent to three or four or five dollars, maybe ten dollars. Yeah. Uh, it, it puts a smile on their face because clerks are notoriously underpaid, have zero responsibility, but catch all the blame and have no authority. So you might need to do business with them again, or if not, okay. you're just simply do, doing what everybody else does, and you know makes life easy for people. I tip, I tip the Federal Express guy. I tip the mailman. Mm. Uh, you tip the garbage people every year at Christmas time. The okay. list goes on. Yeah. And that, so, that becomes a little added cost sometimes. All right, Mike. We're going to need to close the show, but give your contact information. Give your contact information so you, uh, people can reach you if they have a case where you are. Um, very easy. Mexico Investigations. Dot com. Okay, that'll work. And it's Mike McHenry, M-C-H-E-N-R-Y. Yep, Fort McHenry. Fort McHenry, okay. <laughs> People remember that. I really appreciate you being on the show today, Mike. Well, it's thank been, you for inviting uh, me. I, I hope somebody uh, you know, t- takes something out of it that helps them. And I, so. um, uh, I wish you all and everyone who's listening a very good day. And thank you so much. And for all of you, it's PIS Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you, Mike. You've been listening to PIS Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.